Welcome to the Green Acres podcast. We are so glad you're here. At Green Acres, we strive to transform lives with the truth of Jesus. 1 John chapter 5 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Well, what does victorious, overcoming, epic faith look like? Well, we're going to see that today in the life of Abraham. So would you turn with me, please, in your Bible or smart device to Genesis chapter 22, where I'll be reading in just a moment, beginning in verse 1. As you're turning, I read the story about a preacher, a worship leader, and a deacon chairman that went on a mission trip together to the jungles of South America. Unfortunately, they were captured by a band of guerrillas, and the lead captor told them they were each going to be executed, but he would grant them each one last request. Well, the preacher said, well, I've got my most requested sermon. Everywhere I go, people want me to preach this sermon. It takes me an hour to preach it. I'd really like to preach that sermon one last time. The worship leader said, well, I've got a concert of my most favorite songs, and, and people really want me to sing this concert. It takes me about an hour to sing it, and I'd like to sing that concert one last time. He finally turns to the deacon chairman, and the deacon chairman says, please, sir, I've heard both the concert and the sermon. Go ahead and shoot me first. (laughs) Well, you'd be happy to know that this sermon's not going to take an hour. Hopefully, it's not going to be my last. But if it were, there's no one I'd rather talk about than Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was once once ridiculed that all of his sermons sounded the same, and he readily agreed, saying he starts anywhere in the Bible and makes a beeline to the cross. Preachers of old used to say there was a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that scarlet thread is the blood of Christ. Nowhere is that theme more evident than Genesis chapter 22. I call this a Mount Everest text in God's Word. It plainly reveals Christ and is powerfully relevant to our lives. Would you stand with me, please, as I begin reading in verse 1 through 14, as we begin. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, that's important, we'll come back to it, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. And on the third day, that's important, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do not do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Will you pray with me, please? Father, as we've already sung this morning, it's our desire to make much of Jesus our living hope and our solid rock. Thank you for causing him to be that to us. And now through this text, may we plainly see the blood of Christ. May our eyes be open, our ears quick to hear, the ground of our heart fertile. And may you speak to each heart here today as you see fit is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message today is Step by Step. We'll get back to our text in just a moment, but first let me try and identify a common denominator in all of our lives, whether you're here on campus live or you're watching online. We live in challenging, turbulent, difficult times, do we not? Our world is filled with wars and rumors of wars. Violence is on the increase, prices rise, stocks fall, a global pandemic doesn't seem to want to go away, and the moral fabric of our nation continues to unravel. And we're tempted to ask, how are we to live in such a time as this? God is very plain on that, my friends. We are to live and walk by faith. Abraham is what I call the poster child, the flag bearer of walking by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and the Faith Hall of Fame, there's more content given to Abraham than any other Bible character. Romans 4 calls him the father of the faithful who leaves an example for us to follow in his steps. But Abraham had to learn to walk with God step by step, and so must you and I. Some of you have heard me say there's nothing like a good sermon with three points, and this is nothing like one. (laughs) I want to share with you real quickly six, six steps that we see in this faith walk in Abraham's life. May it be so with you and I. Here's step number one. Would you notice it, please? Faith is a personal journey. It is a personal journey. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, who was called Abram at the time, was living in a pagan land, a land of idolatry. There's no evidence that Abraham was anything other than a pagan himself. When the call of the one true God comes to Abraham. In fact, we see that in Genesis 12. Would you notice this real quickly? Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. Did you notice, my friends, that this was God-initiated? God sought Abraham out based on no merit on Abraham's part. 
God sought him out just as he sought Moses at a burning bush and Gideon while threshing wheat and Elisha plowing behind some oxen and Peter at his fishing nets. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save that which is lost, and I'm convinced that he's seeking some here today in the sound of my voice. This was God-initiated on God's part. Faith is a personal journey. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, don't get caught up and lost in the theological high weeds of free will versus election. The truth is, when someone comes to faith in Christ, it involves both. Theologian and scholar Dallas Willard calls it like this, it is though you see a door to eternal life, and above that door is the sign, whosoever will, let him come. I am a whosoever. And you choose to walk through that door of eternal life. And walking through, you see another sign that says you were chosen. It's one of the great mysteries of God and above my pay grade. But God sought Abraham out. Abraham is being called not to follow a plan or a program, not a religion or a denomination, but a personal God that you can know. Jesus said, My sheep hear my name, and they follow. I know my sheep by name, and they follow. Can you and I say like David, the Lord is my shepherd. Faith is a personal journey. I can't walk in the faith of Pastor Michael. I can grow from his sermons. I can learn from his example, and I'd be wise to do so, but I can't walk in his faith. You can't walk in the face of your faith of your spouse or your parents. Faith is a personal journey. After Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension, he's talking to the disciple Peter. He's telling Peter what lies ahead for him, times of suffering and hardship and conflict. Peter looks to John standing over in the distance and says to Jesus, what about John? And Jesus says, basically, you let me worry about John. You follow me. Faith is a personal journey, my friends, and if our faith is not personal, when crisis and conflict and hardship comes, we'll abandon it because the faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Abraham and you and I must discover that faith is a personal journey. Here's step number two we see in Abraham's step-by-step walk. Faith is promise-based. Faith is promise-based. Did you see that verse in Genesis 12? God says to Abraham something impossibly and unbelievable. I'm going to make through you a great nation, through your descendants. You're going to be a blessing. Now, this seemed impossible because Abraham was old. He was really old. And his wife, Sarah, was barren. But he's being introduced to a God who makes promises and is a promise keeper. Faith is promise-based. I write things in my journal, especially things that I want to remember, and I wrote of an occasion when my now adult son Isaac, I have an Isaac, was in middle school. He was a great tennis player growing up. He comes to me one evening shortly before bedtime and says, Dad, can we play tennis tomorrow evening? I said, sure, son, we can. He said, do you promise? I said, I promise, son. 
Well, I got home late the next day, and I forgot that Isaac had basketball practice. He had homework. He had dinner to eat. Bedtime came. We hadn't played tennis. He comes and says, Dad, what about tennis? And then he had the audacity to say, I've looked forward to it all day. If someone, he said, he said this, if someone were to ask me today what you're thinking about, I said, playing tennis with my dad tonight. So where were we on a school night at bedtime? We were on the tennis courts under the lights playing tennis. Because I had made him a promise and he had it hidden in his heart. We live in a culture of broken promises, do we not? They may come through your employer, from the government, from advertising, or broken promises that we make to one another. But God's not like us. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he not spoken, will he not do it? Hath he not said, will he not make it come about? Charles Spurgeon said this about promises. Whatever you need, you may readily find a promise in the Bible regarding it. When you read such a promise, take it back to the great promiser and ask him to fulfill his own word. Take that promise to the throne continually. Go to God again and again saying, Lord, you said, so do as you have said. Faith is promise-based. In Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul gives a bad news, good news scenario of someone's life before and after coming to Christ. Now listen carefully, lean in on me if you would. I'm convinced that one of the reasons as born-again children of God that we fail to enjoy the good news and the joy of our salvation is we've forgotten how bad the bad news is. You see, you weigh one in contrast to the other. So in Ephesians 2, Paul paints this picture of the bad news of those who are outside of Christ. Look at what he says. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Did you see what that phrase Paul used? Strangers to the covenants of promise. Before I came to Christ, not one promise in this book was mine, except the promise of judgment. But 2 Peter 1 says that now in Christ we have these precious and magnificent promises that has nothing to do with health and wealth. Don't go there. The promises of God are so much greater than that. This is the very faithfulness and the sufficiency of God in your life and mine. If we back up just for a second and look at Abraham once again. Abraham is clinging to those promises. Look at what Romans 4 says. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, fully assured that what God has promised, he was able to perform. Faith is a personal journey and it is promise-based. So grab a hold of them. Don't waver. Cling to them. Here's step number three real quickly. Faith is the prerequisite to righteousness. Faith is the prerequisite 
to righteousness. Now, you know what a prerequisite is, don't you? You have to take calculus one before you can take calculus two. I think you're nuts if you take either. But one precedes the other. Okay? Faith is the prerequisite to righteousness. In fact, in Genesis 15, Abraham's hanging out in the tent one night, and God says, Abraham, come out here for a second. Look it up in Genesis 15. And Abraham goes out, and God says, look at the stars. Stars shine bright on the Israeli desert. The astronomers tell us there's billions of stars in our galaxy and billions of galaxies beyond ours. Isaiah 40 says, God calls them all by name and not one of them is missing. You don't think he cares much more for each of you? And then God says, count them, Abraham, if you can. That's how great your descendants are going to be. Now, remember... Abraham still old, even older now. Sarah is still barren, but God is declaring once again his promise. And then in Genesis 15, verse 6, we find this. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is one of the foundational verses, gang, of the Christian doctrine. Abraham was credited, considered approved, accepted by God as righteous on the basis of faith and no merit of his own. Prior to this, Abraham had fought a great battle, but his performance wasn't the basis of his righteousness. He had amassed great wealth, but his wealth was not the basis of his righteousness. He'd offered tithes to the high priest Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, but tithing wasn't the basis of righteousness. He's righteous on the basis of faith alone. And you say, well, Annie, what does that have to do with me? Everything, my friends. Everything. It's the blueprint for how one is saved. In fact, if you'll notice this verse, please, from Romans 4, because he, Abraham, was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do, therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. You see, righteousness, right standing with God, comes not based on our works, lest any man should boast, but faith in Christ alone, what he did at the cross and through the resurrection when he died in your place for your sins and for mine. Righteousness comes by faith. Faith is the prerequisite for righteousness. That word credit or reckoned in some translation that God uses, is an accounting term. Did you know it? It means to put over here in the credit column as done, and you can act on it. Let me give you an example. I'm old enough, like some of you, that I can remember I used to get paid by a paper check I could hold in my hand. I could see it. There it is. But then later, like many of you, I began getting paid by direct deposit. Couldn't see that. So the first time or two it happened, me being old school, I called the bank and I said, has by any chance a deposit been made into my account? Yes, Mr. Bridges, it has. 
You don't have to call and check on it. It's been done, and I could act on it. Righteousness is credited to you on the basis of what Jesus did at the cross alone, and you can act on it. Romans 5 says that we have received in him the gift of righteousness so that we might reign in life. Ephesians 6 says, 6 says this, breast, this righteousness is a breastplate in the armor of God. It is the, the, the mark of our identity and who we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. I am not what my feelings say about me. Feelings make great friends, but terrible taskmasters. I'm not what the world says about me. I'm not what the devil whispers in my ear. I am who God says I am in Christ, which is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And it comes by faith alone. Some of you recall Paul Harvey, and in his news of the day once, he shared a report that happened in the Charlotte airport at the ticket counter, there was a long line of travelers waiting to be served, and towards the back of the line was a businessman, sharply dressed, very affluent looking, and he was frustrated about waiting in line. So he goes up to the ticket counter, rudely cuts in front of everybody else, demands to be waited on, and the ticket agent said, sir, I'm happy to wait on you, but you'll have to wait your turn like everybody else. He said, ma'am, do you know who I am? She very calmly grabbed the PA microphone, turned on the switch, and said, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a man here who doesn't know who he is. If someone can help him, would you come to the counter, please? Well, tragically, too often is we don't know who we are in Christ. But, but this says very clear that faith precedes is the prerequisite to righteousness not based on our, our own merit. God credits it to us based on what Jesus did at the cross. Faith is a personal journey. Faith is promise-based. Faith is the prerequisite to righteousness. Here's number four. You're going to have to listen a lot faster. Faith has a persistent enemy. Faith has a persistent enemy. Fast forward 10 years. Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are getting a little tired waiting on God's timing. So at Sarah's suggestion, they figure they'll help God out. Abraham sleeps with Sarah's handmaiden, except they did more than sleep. She gets pregnant and bears a child named Ishmael. But Ishmael is the result of Abraham's effort. He's the result of Abraham's doing, not the promised child of Faith coming through Sarah. In Genesis 21, God finally opens Sarah's womb. He, he honors his promise. She gives birth to a miracle baby. They name him Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac grow up together, but there's strife between them. So God says basically to Abraham, Ishmael must go. Listen carefully, friends. Abraham learned it. You and I must learn it. There is a persistent enemy in the walk of faith, and it's the flesh, doing things my way, by my agenda, in my own strength, by my own resources. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that the flesh and the spirit are in opposition one to another, so that in the flesh you cannot please God. 
Jesus said that apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul writes that in my flesh dwells no good thing. And whenever I'm relying upon Lanny and my resources and my agenda and my purposes, I always produce an Ishmael and never an Isaac. There is a painful memory for me. We're a snow skiing family. And uh, even though kids are grown, they've been skiing since they were very little. So when they were very little, we were at a ski resort, and we're standing in a long lift line. Now, now snowboarders are common on the slopes, and they're very, they're very polite, they're very courteous. But back then, there weren't very many snowboarders, and those that were were real free spirits, kind of wild and out of control. So we're standing in this long lift line, and this snowboarder comes down this hill at a high rate of speed, lays his snowboard down, and crashes through about four people hurting them. And then just jumps up and acts like it's nothing. Cool. <laughs> wow. And takes off. Well, something rose up in me. And I said, Don, if one of those snowboarders hurts Hannah and Isaac and acts like it's nothing, I'm going to skin them alive with this ski pole and hang their hide on the wall with the Philistines. That's exactly what I said. And Dawn, being wiser and godlier than I, said, yeah, that's what Jesus would do. <laughs> and I'm reminded that the, righteous, that the anger of man never achieves the righteousness of God. Whenever we launch out in our flesh and in my flesh, I always get something that looks more like Lanny and less like Jesus, an Ishmael and not an Isaac. Faith as a persistent enemy. Notice this verse from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, think with me, friends. There's lots of things that you and I can do without faith. Without faith, you can get a diploma, you can start a job, you can buy a house, you can get married, raise a family. As a church, without faith, we can build buildings, meet budgets, go to the mission field. But if we do any of those things in our own fleshly effort and apart from faith, we can never please God. That's why Romans 15 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And Ishmael must go. Faith has a persistent enemy. Here's step number five. We get back to our original text of Genesis 22. Faith is proven by testing. It is proven by testing. Faith is refined in struggle and proven by testing. In fact, James says that faith without works is dead. Now, we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone. But James is saying genuine faith is going to have some evidence that validates it as authentic. So when the disciples are in a stormy sea and convinced they're going to seek and they're filled with, with fear and anxiety and fret and worry, Jesus says, where is your faith, guys? I don't see it. Why? Because faith is going to have some evidence that validates it as authentic. So God says to Abraham in our text, take your son, and did you see it? Your only son. Now, wait a second. Didn't he have two? Ishmael and Isaac? 
One the product of Abraham's effort, the other a product of God's doing. But in God's eyes, he just had one. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Take him to the place I'll show you and sacrifice him there. Abraham offered no rebuttal, no, no question, no resistance. He just obeyed. Now, perhaps you ask, like I often have, why such a harsh command? Why such a harsh command? Most often we think it was a test of Abraham's devotion. Did he love and value Isaac more than he loves and values God? That's valid because Colossians 1 says that Jesus is to have first place supremacy in all things. There's to be no rivals to the supremacy of Christ in our life, not another person or a job or a church or a ministry or a possession, no rivals. So perhaps it was a test of his devotion. A.W. Tozer says this, God never intended that Abraham actually slay his son. He only wanted to remove him from the temple of Abraham's heart that God might reign unchallenged there. Maybe it was a test of devotion. More likely though, listen up, more likely it was a test of his faith. Did he really believe God's promise that through Isaac, his descendants would be like the stars and the sand? Let's get inside Abraham's head and see what he's thinking. Here's Abraham's reasoning. Look at this in, in Hebrews 11. The one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. Here's what's in Abraham's head. If God says through Isaac, my descendants are going to be like the stars, and if Isaac's dead, God's going to raise him up. We saw it was a three-day journey from where they were to Mount Moriah. So for three days, Abraham's living and believing in a resurrection. Does that sound familiar? When he raises the knife over Isaac, he is believing in a resurrection. When things look impossible, difficult, when circumstances are dire, when Goliaths are raising their head in your life, faith clings to the promises of God. And it's proven by testing. And those promises held true for David before a nine-foot giant and Daniel in a lion's den and Paul and Silas in a Philippians jail. Those promises are hold true in the ICU waiting room or in a time of unemployment or financial crisis or when a marriage is in trouble or family relationships are strained. Faith is proved through testing. And the purpose of that testing is so the world can see Jesus. In fact, if you'd look at this verse real quickly in 1 Peter 1, rejoice in this, even now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, being more valuable than gold, which is perishable, is refined by fire, and notice this, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a fiery furnace and the king looks in and goes, wait a minute, didn't we throw three in there? I see a fourth. And the fourth looks like a son of God. I believe that's one of those pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. 
And God will allow us to go through the furnaces of life. His faith and promises will be proven and tested so that there might be something that looks like Jesus and the world is watching. Faith is proven by testing. And then the last thing, and I'll be done, and this is the crescendo, faith's greatest provision is Jesus. This is where the scarlet thread becomes evident. God stops Abraham before he stabs Isaac, and he looks over here, and God says, wait, Abraham, I've got a better sacrifice. I've got a better substitute. I've got a better plan that's more pleasing to me. And there's a ram caught in the thicket, and Abraham takes that ram and kills him in place of Isaac, and he names that place Jehovah-Jireh, God-provided. That's a picture of Jesus. Can I share a little Bible geography with you real quickly? Moriah, this place where God told Abraham to offer up Isaac, Moriah is the exact same place where years later David builds an altar because the punishment of God had been halted. It's the exact same place where Solomon builds a temple. It is the exact same place where one Passover Friday, a veil is torn in two from top to bottom when God's perfect lamb is being sacrificed for you and for me. Faith's greatest provision is Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus says this regarding Abraham. Look at this. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Abraham was looking forward, and you know what he saw? You know who he saw? He saw Jesus. Jesus is God's greatest provision for you in my life. Through him, we are made righteous. Through him, we are more than conquerors. Through him, our weakness is made strong. Through him, our, our needs are met through his riches and glory. Through him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. So that in any circumstance in life, we can say, for this, I have Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. In John chapter 6, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Master, what must we do to work the works of God? You know what they're thinking? I mean, they've seen Jesus walk on water, cast out demons, raise the dead. You know, what must we do, Jesus, to do the stuff like you? Here's what Jesus says. Are you ready? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Right now, today in your life and in mine. What are you believing Him for right now? Faith's greatest provision is Christ. That caused John Piper to say these words, and I love this quote, God is the most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in Him. God is the most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in Him. That's overcoming faith. That's epic faith. The faith that finds Jesus more than enough. Let me give you a takeaway truth real quickly before I close. Notice this verse from Colossians 2. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him. Did you see that? As you received Christ, so continue to walk in Him. Here's the takeaway truth. We live the Christian life the same way we began, by faith, by faith. 
Romans 1 says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Jesus said this faith starts out like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, and begins to grow. Where is yours today? In one of actor Tom Hanks' earliest movies entitled Joe Versus the Volcano, he plays a man that's kind of pitiful in life. He's an office worker and he's the subject of a con. He's given a negative false doctor report that he has a terminal disease about to die. He decides to go on an adventure. He's on a sailing vessel on the South Pacific. A big storm comes. The, the vessel sinks. He alone survives. He's sim- he has assembled enough wreckage to make a life raft. He's days out on the sea at the point of starving of dehydration and dying of thirst. One night he's laying down and a majestic moon rises above him, kind of like the one they tell us rose this week. Bigger than life. And he wakes up and he looks and he struggles to his feet and he raises his hands to heaven and then he falls to his knees and he says, Oh God, whose name I do not know, thank you for my life. I forgot how big you are. Abraham is called by a God whom he did not know. And that God begins to reveal himself time and time again as bigger than he can possibly imagine. How big is he to you? How big is he to me? Singer-songwriter, the late singer-songwriter, Rich Mullins, Mullins had a signature song whose lyrics go like this, see if this sounds familiar. Sometimes I think of Abraham and how one star he saw was lit for me. He was a stranger in his land, and I'm that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness, the climb can get so steep, and sometimes I falter in my steps, but never beyond his reach. Oh, God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning and learn to walk in your ways, and step by step you'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my days." And this faith journey begins with you and with me the same way it did with Abraham, responding to the call of God in Christ for our sins to be forgiven and to be made clean and whole and and to be made righteous in the blood of Christ alone. Maybe that's true for someone here today. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and then the worship team will come and Lead us in one last song. But if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you know there's something more, may I just tell you that there is a judgment of sin upon your life, a debt that Christ has paid on your behalf. And you can be saved today and made clean, not by any works of your own, but by faith in His finished work alone. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Perhaps you're here today and you already know Christ as your Savior, but your faith hasn't progressed much beyond that mustard seed faith. And He wants to reveal His promises to you, and He wants to teach you how to resist the flesh, face greatest enemy, and how to be refined in the proving of your faith and be, have an overcoming faith that conquers the world.
After I pray and we dismiss in song, there's going to be some back in the connection suite back here. I'll be back there. There'll be those who'd be loving to pray with you if you'd like to accept Christ as your Savior or join in the fellowship of this church. Or maybe you just need someone to pray with you. Whatever that need is, there's people waiting to serve the Lord by serving you. So step out in faith today. Would you pray with me, please? Well, Father, in Jesus' name, it's my prayer and our prayer that you've spoken this morning with clarity. And that you've revealed to us through your servant Abraham what it means to, to walk with you step by step and have a faith in the, that overcomes the world. We long for that in the days that we live. So for that person listening to the sound of my voice today that, that is in step one of this journey, and that's to trust you for salvation and eternal life in Christ, may they have the courage and the conviction to respond today and be made righteous and be made whole. And for those others, including me, may we have that, that confidence in walking with you that you're the God who keeps promises, that you're the God who's more than enough, and that in Christ you provided all that we need. May we be satisfied in him and him alone. So as we leave here today and go into our worlds, is our prayer, Jesus, that you would increase and we would decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you for joining us today with our church family here at Green Acres Baptist Church. And this invitation is for you. Maybe God is stirring in your heart right now from what you have heard. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe God is calling you right now for salvation. You know, the Bible is very clear that if we uh, confess with our mouth and if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says that you will be saved. And so right now you could pray a very simple prayer and just say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life and save me. If that's you today, we wanna help you and walk with you with this decision. Maybe for others of you, uh, maybe you've been saved, but maybe you've been waiting to get baptized. Uh, maybe you need to, figure out what it means to be a member of our church here at Green Acres. Whatever that decision is, we want to come alongside you. And so do us a favor. You can fill out the connect card at gabc.org and one of our team members will be with you very shortly. Whatever it is that God has laid on your heart, we want to walk with you in your growth in Jesus Christ. I look forward to hearing from you soon.